I love words. Like, I adore words. They're so cool. The problem is, words are essentially meaningless. Well, they can be, right? Zum Beispiel, ich habe sieben Jahre studiert und mein Bett ist in der Quen. Which means nothing to any of you, unless you speak German. If you speak German, you know I studied for seven years and I have a comfortable bed. That's about all I was able to tell you. But words have meaning, because we give them meaning. Alright? In the beginning, God brought all the animals to Adam and he named them. He ascribed the value to them. He gave them a name. The other problem with words, though, besides the fact that they might not mean anything, is we get so confused about what a word we agree on even means. And as the story goes, Picasso is sitting in a park bench one morning. This woman walks up and recognizes him. And she's like, what, what luck, some fine Sunday morning, and here's Pablo Picasso sitting alone on a bench with a sketch pad. She had recently seen his work, and so was excited to meet him, and finally worked up the courage, got up to him and said, Mr. Picasso, I love your work. I just saw it in this exhibit in Paris. Yada, yada. And Picasso responds kindly. He's actually polite to her, which if you know anything about Picasso, is kind of weird. And through this politeness and confidence, the woman gained some, some own confidence that maybe I can ask for something here. So she finally works up the confidence and asks Mr. Picasso, would you mind doing a sketch for me. After all, it'll only take you one minute. So Picasso agrees to spend a minute, pulls out his pencil, starts doodling. Now the woman's standing there, and halfway through that minute she realizes, this is kind of a big deal. Like, he's probably used to being given money in exchange for his work. And she's like, oh, I only have $50 in my purse. <laughs> That's, there's no way that could be worth it for Picasso. But then again, Picasso never mentioned the price up front. He seemed to be cool with doing this before knowing what he was going to get. And, you know, after all, it was so quick. He just wanted 60 seconds of his time. So, when Picasso was done, she felt confident that she'd be able to get the drawing for her $50. So she explains the deal to Picasso. Picasso turns to her and says, $50? This is worth $50,000. And now the woman's upset. A minute of your time, Picasso? $50,000? Who are you? to say 50 grand right now. So she feels confident saying to him, but Picasso, it took you one minute. To which he replied, a one minute took me my whole life. You see, the thing is, they're both looking at the same thing. They're both looking at a drawing. They both agree on what a drawing is. We know, but how we ascribe value to it changes drastically.
I love that story for a couple of reasons. First off, um, it's not true. It never happened. I mean, hey Cyrus, this is such a nerd thing, but you turn the game down on the preamp a little bit. Just a touch. I just don't want any feedback here. <clears throat> yeah, so this story is made up. It never happened. This woman never approached Picasso. Picasso definitely never talked to her. Well, I don't know. But he probably didn't. And so while it's the historical lie, it's a falsity, it does tell us the truth, though. It speaks to the truth of how we all value things differently. We all see value in things differently. Talk about women's health, right? How, many, how much research is done on men's health? Almost all of it, you know? It's a good thing that times are changing. And Jesus kind of explains his values several times. The one that I'm thinking of is the, the rich young man. Cyrus, next slide. Should we? Yeah, let's go one more. All right. You know, the time where Jesus was approached by the rich guy, the guy who kept every law, kept every commandment, and said, Jesus, what's next? I'm your protege. What do you want me to do? Could you? Could you give up everything? Because he's clearly saying, if you would be perfect, because that's what the man's asking for, if you would be perfect, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, your treasure's in heaven, don't worry, then come talk to me. None of us can meet that. It's a tall bar. It was tall enough that the rich young man left in despair. And I think we can understand why his heart was revealed to himself. Jesus will humble you. Without a doubt. Mainly because he humbled himself. Alright, next slide. <sighs> Alright, so... <clears throat> My translation is going to be a little bit different, but it should be fun to look at one while reading, hearing the other. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Thank you, Pastor, for giving me a conclusion statement. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellently, excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. It's another then statement. This text is great. I love it. Uh, but to me, it asks more questions than it gives answers. And for the most part, that's how I see the Bible. The Bible reveals your heart. It doesn't tell your heart where to go, necessarily. Many, many people come to this Bible looking for answers. Certainly, find answers in there. I'm a child of God. I know that. But it's going to ask you more questions the deeper you get into it. It's really more like a mirror than anything else that reveals who you are as much as it can reveal who God is. But if we're not careful, we'll get it all twisted up. Looking in the mirror, trying to do an action, everything's backwards, everything's upside down. So if we're not careful, 
who knows what we're going to end up using in the Bible. See, the problem is that we want to reveal the truth of Scripture, right? We want to be able to read it and be like, I got it. I know what to do. I think it's a human fact that we just want to know what to do. At any stage, any age of life, we just want to know what to do. Which brings us to the first problem, in my head at least here. And G.K. Chesterton put it perfectly. When will people understand that it is useless for them to read their Bible? Unless they also read everybody else's. If you read your own Bible, and only your own Bible, are you reading the truth? Let's put it this way. So G.K. goes on to explain, like, if you're a printer, right, that's your job. I print books and I sell them. If you're a printer, you're going to read the Bible and you're going to read for misprints, right? Let's say you're a Protestant, like me. I guess I am. Um, you might read the Bible and find a work ethic, right? Um, let's see, what's another way we can talk about it? Um, the rich young man. Maybe you're a person of wealth and you want to understand how to live your life according to the rules. You can find all of that in this book. And nothing is necessarily wrong with any of those intentions. Surely looking for misprints, we're not going to say, well, that's a terrible person. But at what point does a work ethic become the object of your worship? At what point, by following the rules, you sneakily and slowly act righteous, but your heart becomes stung? God, I mean, God cares about our actions. I'm not saying He doesn't. But our actions are symptoms of our heart. So don't look at the actions and be like, oh, they need to change their actions. I mean, they probably do. I know I do. But that's not, that's not where Jesus is going. So, for the rest of the day, I just want you to know we're going to be reading from the Bible according to Ryan Gorgel. That's, uh, that's all I can do. So, in uh, Philippi, well, Paul's in prison in Rome, but just so you know, Philippi, it's on the kind of the top, over towards Turkey, um, really interesting town, super fun history, we're not going to go into it, but um, it's actually named, we'll do the short version, uh, it's actually named after Philip II of Macedon, who's really only famous because his son was Alexander the Great, um, man, he would hate hearing that though, gosh, could you imagine, anyways, um, your son's Alexander the Great. Talk about being shown up. Um, also, after Rome conquered the area, there was a civil war. Julius Caesar gets stabbed a bunch of times. Empire is torn asunder. A guy eventually comes to the throne. His name is Augustus. His name was Octavian at the time, but he becomes Augustus. It's actually why the month of August is named August. It's after this guy. And um, he wins a major battle in the civil war outside of Philippi. So, one of the things you do as a Roman emperor is when you win wars, you have to pay off your soldiers, right? Because they're, they're like, we died for you, or almost died for you. So it's pretty common to just give them, like, oh, take some parcels of land outside of Italy. You know, we just conquered them. It'll be a good time. So, Philippi is full of Roman veterans. And remember what Paul came there to tell them. <laughs> 
Paul walks into Philippi and says, Jesus is king. That was the message. Now, it's weird for us to consider this, but a lot of Romans considered the emperors gods. Augustus was deified after his death. He was publicly announced as this was a god. And you can imagine that for the soldiers who went through the hardships, fought and bled for him, and were given a reward in Philippi, would certainly see Augustus as king, might even see him as God. That's what Paul's walking into when he visited. But where we are now is Paul's left. Paul's gone. He's in Rome, and he's in prison again. He has an act for it. So he's writing this letter to the people in Philippi, because when he left, what, what turned to be, or sorry, what started to be resistance amongst Philippians against the church turned to just outright persecution. So here's Paul in Rome, in prison, being persecuted, writing a letter to people being persecuted, saying, hey, this is how we're going to do it. He constructs it in four chapters, well, we split it up into four chapters, super dense, a lot of heft. And he constructs this letter by a series of vignettes that kind of wrap around a poem that's bound in the middle of the book. And each of the vignettes speaks to one element of the truth that the poem cries out for. So Philippians 1, there we go. So here's the, here's the book of Philippians really quick, ready? <laughs> Chapter 1, 1 to 11, Paul starts out traditionally, very Pauline, he gives thanks. He gives thanks for the generosity and the faithfulness of the people. We'll get to the generosity part. And he also expresses confidence that the life-transforming work which has begun in them when he was there, didn't stop. It is still growing. And then he moves on, 12 through 26, where he talks about his current situation. Hey, it's Paul, I'm in prison again. You know, and reflecting on that, he says, you know, imprisonment's actually been pretty good for Jesus. All the, all the guards know why I'm here. All the Christians in Rome know why I'm here. They're, giving, they're getting emboldened by my actions. It's not too bad. And he also acknowledges that he may be set free, he may be executed. At the time, politically, it was a coin flip, really. And he's kind of excited, actually, because if he's executed, he'll be with Jesus. And then if he's released, he can keep working for Jesus. That's a tough sentiment to actually, like, live. You know, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Hold on to that one. And then we go on. Here, Paul kind of addresses them in the context of, like, citizenry. Because obviously that's a theme here. We have a bunch of Roman citizens who are proud to be Roman, who are being told there's a new king on the block, right? But Paul says, your life as citizens needs to be consistent with the gospel. It needs to be consistent with the good news of the Messiah. It's not that as citizens we should just do whatever we want. No, we behave accordingly as a citizen on earth. And then he goes on to the kind of straddle first and second chapter here. Paul urges him to pick up Jesus' example and walk with him. And then if we move on further, 6 through 11... 
This is where Paul gets into the great poem. And I'm going to skip that. Because someone else needs to read that for us. Alright, 2.19.30. There we are. Okay. So, here's where some juicy stuff happens. Paul gives two examples about people living Jesus' story. First one is Timothy. Not the, the, not the Timothy, but a Timothy. And is that the right way to put it? Sure. So Timothy, Paul tells us, is constantly concerned with the well-being of others. So much so that he puts himself below them and is carrying out through his, the way he behaves in his life the love of Christ. And then he brings up Epaphroditus, who brought Paul money and food from Philippi and then brought the letter that Paul just wrote back. Meanwhile, he almost died at least once during the whole time. Suffered persecution, had a terrible illness because of it. He was on both of these people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's a tough one. Both of them Live like Jesus said, deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow me. Then we move on to chapter 3, where Paul reflects on his own history. Um, and to really get this one across, we'd have to go through Galatians. But since I can only possibly summarize one book, we're going to skip it. But basically, Paul says he has all the privilege in the world as a Jew. He's the most, uh, let's not say it that way. He is the most esteemed person in his community. He has all the credentials. Everything is going for him. But he counts his privilege as filth. Now the word he uses for filth isn't exactly polite. Since children are here, we'll stick with filth. This is where Paul turns with the idea of, yes, we are citizens on earth. But our true citizenship is in heaven. Then we go to chapter 4. I love this part. Paul addresses two women in leadership and urges them to reconcile with each other. I'm just excited about the whole women in leadership part. Right? We should speak more about that. Uh, then we come to our current text, which we'll hop over for a second. Wrap up the book with 10 through 23. And here he concludes that hardship is his great teacher. In need and prosperity, in poverty and plenty, I've learned the secret of contentment. Simple dependence on the one who strengthens me. One more, please. So now what do we do with these two verses, right? We've we got the general overview. What do we do with it? I mean, finally, there's two things that really come up to me. First is, whatever is true. What does true mean, right? What does that word mean? In English, no, let's, let's back up. I think any of us that have been sentient for the past four or five years would acknowledge the fact that truth is a tenuous word. A lot of people proclaim the truth right now even if it's a bold-faced lie. And everyone knows it's a bold-faced lie. It's proved in court that it's a bold-faced lie. It's still the truth. What does Paul mean by truth? It could mean anything to anyone. Going back to G.K. Chesterton, 
everyone has their own Bible, right? We need to read each other's Bibles. You could easily pick up the Bible and find whatever you want in it. So let's be careful about what we're seeing here. The word he specifically uses for truth is aletheia, which is variously translated, of course, but it can mean unconcealedness, revealing, or the state of being evident. And I love that. Evidence. This is something that is true. It's backed by evidence. That which is evident is what Paul is starting with. That which reveals God's truth is what we're desiring here. That's what he desires and desires for us. Because this whole letter is pointing to the fact that our citizenship is in heaven and it's not on earth. And he uses the actions of others to show an example of how we're to live for Christ in a way that is evident. So where's the evidence? Timothy. What's the evidence in his life? He held all others above himself. Epaphroditus. What was the evidence of his life? He was willing to die. He almost died in service of his brother or sister. To live our lives as an act of service is the beginning of the truth that Paul is speaking about. Here's an important point, though. We can't just go on pretending. We can't live as well as Christ. Remember the rich young man? Financial wealth isn't the only wealth you can have. Your wealth can become your friends, your family, your work. Don't get me wrong, richness can be found in all those spheres. Those relationships are important. But they can also become the stumbling stone. Again, Jesus will humble you. He will trip you up. Or rather, you will step on him and be tricked. Which brings me to another point here, really. Can you go to the next slide? I'm not, I'm not a theologian. I studied audio engineering. I'm a web developer. So I'm primed to be nitpicky and semantic with words. I'm great at it. When I read this scripture, there's, there's a question that keeps popping up in my head. Is Jesus saying that even if we live perfectly, even if we followed the law, that we'd still fall short? How else can we respond to, but I say, if you are even angry, if your heart is in a position, that's what God cares about. He doesn't need to see you murdered, Abel, to know what's in your heart. He doesn't need to see the action. That's for us to find out what is producing good fruit and what isn't. God has no problem with that. Which I think is so, if that is true, and I don't know that it is theologically, if it is true that even if you nailed the law, no pun intended, if you executed the law to the utmost degree, you're still going to fall short of God. It doesn't matter. Even if you had the perfect scorecard, 
You'd be feeling wanting when your heart is actually waiting. And this is what I love about this passage. See what the good news is? You don't have to. The work has been done. It's over. Right? We're not bound by evil anymore. Rather, we're able to be strengthened by the truth. Next slide, please. So back to the text. I feel like we're just kind of going in circles here. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Here's the key, though. Keep putting into practice all you learn and receive from me. Knowing something is invalid, or has no value. If you don't do anything with your knowledge, do you actually know it? I, in my personal experience, experience is the best teacher. It's like Paul talks about. Hardship is the best teacher. Because it forces you to experience something. And that experience is going to change you. It's the heart of worship. Worship is about reorienting your heart. Not about singing a song. So we're asked to meditate on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And we can go into all those words. That's the angle I chose not to go down. Because really what's the heart of what's going on here is antithetical to our culture. We are asked to meditate on what is true. To be silent. To listen to God. One of my favorite things to do with people sometimes Be silent. You know how uncomfortable that makes people? Oh, man. Uh, quick tip, if you're ever in a negotiation of any sort, just don't say anything. It's amazing how effective it can be. So how are we going to meditate if we can't even, we get stir-crazy after five seconds? In my experience of meditation, the first five seconds, I've got it. I'm good. And then my brain just starts worrying away. I'm like, oh, what about that? And oh, what about, got to do the laundry? And dinner would be great. Like, I, it just, I can't help do it. That's because I'm conditioned. I'm on my phone all the time. I'm always, I'm not up here to tell you, hey, try harder, do better. It's not going to help you, to be honest. <laughs> it won't. Like we said, it can't. So... Just trying harder isn't really going to do much for you. So there's this meditation that I was taught that I want to teach to you. Because this is a tool you can use anywhere, anytime, in any place. Just did it right in front of you. Here's how it goes. Simple breath exercise. 
So you breathe in. I can't. Breathe out. But you can. I can't. But you can. Any moment in your life, you can use that. Any moment in your life, you will be reminded of God's love for you. You will also be reminded that the work's done. You can't do it. And then we're forced to remember the truth of Jesus' love, that he already did it. Such good stuff. And not to mention, focusing on your breath just has physiological benefits. So, even if you don't feel like the Holy Spirit's with you, you might feel better. You know, Don't worry, the Spirit's there. You don't need to feel the Spirit for the Spirit to be present. So all this is about the truth of Jesus is love. Paul is encouraging us to behave in a certain way. But we skip the poem mainly because I think it's the best part. And like I said, I'm not going to read it because I think we, it's important to hear other people's Bibles. This is Cyrus. This is verse 2, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Have the attitude of Christ. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are the thoughts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I'm glad someone else read that, because I'd cry every time. Uh, by the way, uh, that, it's, you can find them anywhere. It's a program called Streetlights. I call it the Bible to a beat, basically. They, they haven't done the whole Bible, but pretty much the whole New Testament is in there. So if you need to find another way to get into the Word, listen to it. Don't just read it. It's amazing to hear someone else read the Word and hear it differently. So as we uh, get ready to depart from this place, go out into our days and love on each other. I'm going to leave you with uh, a benediction from my grandma's culture. <laughs> May the road rise up to meet you.
And may the wind be always at your back. May the sun. The sun shine warm upon your face, and the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Thank you. Can we just uh, give Brian a round of applause? Thank you. And just for me, as I kind of am still thinking and processing everything uh, from the message, I think one thing I appreciate is there was so much he gave us besides just the message itself. I think there's so much that you can take away from what he shared, um, things that I can now apply throughout the week and try. So I really appreciate that. Um, he gave us so much. Um, there is a lot that we can take away, a lot of things that we can actually do and use. And thank you, Ryan, for that. Um, I truly appreciate that. Um, it's much needed in my life, so thank you. Um, I want to thank Mila. I want to thank CJ. Um, I want to thank Knowledge. I want to thank the Praise Dance team. Rita, thank you. Um, just as my daughter was Praise Dance, I realized that like, you show up, you're putting in the work, and the kids, my daughter, they want to do it. And it's up to us sometimes as the adults to make sure they get there and to make sure that we put them in a position so they can um, uh, worship God and learn more about God and spend time amongst other kids who are, who are Christ followers. So thank you, Rita, for what you've done. Thank you. Um, if you just, uh, we're going to close out with prayer. Um, Father God, thank you. Thank you for this message uh, from Ryan. Uh, thank you for Youth Explosion, Father. Thank you just once again for bringing all of us here together as family. Uh, Lord Jesus, I just ask that uh, whatever was in our hearts, uh, that you continue to transform us, Father. Uh, allow us to take what was spoken today and implement that throughout our week with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers and our lives, Father. Just knowing that when we breathe in, Father, you know we can't breathe out, you know you can, Lord Jesus. And we take that with us in every conversation, every relationship, and anything that we deal with, Father, we know that if we just trust you, that if we just allow you to work through us, Father, it'll be okay. Uh, Father God, again, thank you. We love you. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.